Maybe then you can see me and I can see you Maybe then we'll come together as a people Tired of the pain cause it ain't new Let's come together as a people Even if we don't share the same view Welcome to the Jesus and Everything Foundation podcast. On this show, we look at all problems affecting the world and we discuss how we can solve them using the character of Jesus, unity, and decentralization of resources available to us. The character of Jesus, or as I like to call them, the Jesus character principles, are principles that whether you are a Christian or not, we can all agree on these principles. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For every episode, we discuss a problem topic from our category list. You can find this list on the Foundation's website, jaef.foundation. We ask ourselves and listeners, what is the goal? What is the vision for this problem category? What are the potential solutions? What are the obstacles? What resources do we need? And what resources do we have? But most importantly, do these solutions and resources pass the character test, the nine Jesus character principles? If yes, then we move on to collaboration. What does this look like? This show is a platform to get the ball rolling on as many problems affecting the world as we can. We want to go beyond just talking about problems. So after the show, we collaborate by acting. First, we open the discussion floor to our listeners. Then we decentralize and open source all of our resources from brain power, manpower, utilities to capital. Before every episode, I like to ask our viewers and listeners, do you ever ask yourself, where are we going? Where is this world going? Time keeps on ticking, the day ends, a new dawn arises, and life goes on. But what is our destination? Do we have any global objectives that unite us when it comes to things like food, security, healthcare, education, or standard of living? It's a fair question to ask. If you work for a company or work for yourself, you have a general idea about your company's vision. Goal. So what is our goal, our overarching vision as the current residents of this planet? What role is your company, your city, your country playing in the big picture? And what role are you who's listening to this playing in this big picture?
This is episode two of the WWE series, the Wild Wild Everywhere series. It's and our big picture and global perspective category. You can find the full list of the industries we shall cover in this category on our website, jf.foundation. That is jaef.foundation. The objective of this series is to establish the mindset that we can combat all these pressures we are currently experiencing in our world today. If we unite globally with specific global objectives for each industry and sector, the goal of this series is to drill down to the root of these problems and establish an ideal global objective that can be achieved if persons from different parts of the world are willing to drop the gloves, unite, roll up their sleeves and get to work. In our last episode, we talked about how viewing the world economically in terms of first world, second world and third world or develop, developing and underdeveloped is not accurate. We introduced a more statistically accurate view using Hans Rosling model, which divides the world's population into four income levels. Level one has one billion people living on it, and it's from zero dollars to two dollars. There is three billion people living on level two, which is from two dollars to eight dollars. There's another two billion people living on level three, which is from eight dollars to thirty-two dollars. And there's one billion people living on the highest income level level four, which is from $32 and beyond. We also talked about standard of living, standard of earning, minimum wage, minimum standard of living, and mandating minimum standard of living globally. I mentioned that globally, the standard of living has increased and keeps increasing faster than the standard of earning, which set the stage for this argument of standard of living versus minimum wage. We explored why the term minimum wage should be phased out, because I believe it's deceiving. Minimum wage should be interpreted as a minimum standard of living. That means the minimum wage should be based on the agreed upon minimum standard of living. And minimum standard of living should be objectively defined or determined at three levels. At a city level, at a provincial level or state level or regional level and at a country level. We need to determine every country's MSL an objective MSL. And I mentioned that it should be a human rights violation if the minimum standard of living isn't met everywhere around the world. We explored the reason for this and why we need to mandate MSL globally. Because lack of MSL trickles down and causes bigger problems in other areas like healthcare, immigration, mental health, which includes depression, anxiety, suicidal rates, drug addiction, hate speech, racism, and division. In part two of this series, we'll continue to explore all the above and dive into, dive deeper into the hypothetical that what happens after we establish an objective minimum standard of living and minimum standard of earning. We'll talk about how countries will have to do an inventory of all their jobs and phase out any job that can't afford to pay their workforce. Minimum standard of living. I'll introduce the concept of UBI, Universal Basic Income, which is picking up steam and propose that maybe the perfect induction of UBI would be as a government wage subsidy to all companies that can't afford to pay their employees their required minimum standard of living or minimum standard of earning. We'll also talk about how we can create a new foundation, a new standard for creating jobs, now that we've eliminated all jobs that don't meet the minimum standard of living or minimum standard of earning criterion. I don't have all the answers, but I believe we can put our minds together and our hearts together and get to the bottom of things. So open up your heart and mind 
and let's take a ride around this planet and some countries. Welcome back to episode two of the WWE series, the Wild Wild Everywhere series. In our last episode, we we were talking about how viewing the world economically in terms of first world, second world, and third world, or developed, developing, and underdeveloped is not an accurate view of the world economically. Then we also introduced a more statistically accurate view, which uses the Hans Rosling model that divides the world's population into four income levels. And just to kind of quickly recap that, the Hans Rosling model postulates the world in, in these different four income levels. There is level one is, and it's all in income per person in dollars per day. So there is level one, which is people living from zero to $2. And then there is level two, which is between $2 to $8 a day. And level three, which is from $8 to $32. And then level four is from $32 and onwards. And level one, which is from zero to $2 has 1 billion people live on, on, on level one. Level two, which is from $2 to $8 has 3 billion people. And level, uh, level two has 3 billion people and level three, which is from $8 to $32, there's 2 billion people that live on this income level. And level four, which is the highest, is 1 billion people. So you can see that majority of the world's population is living on level two and level three, which is from $2 to $32. There's about 5 billion people that live on that income level. So then you know if you if we've got a population of about 7.6 billion people then you know the 2.6 billion people you have 1 billion of that you know kind of level one and then a, another you know percentage of that is uh another billion of that is about is on level four which would mean there's about 600 million people that probably aren't even accounted for and maybe that could be because they're not you know, part of the workforce, you know, they're not able to work. And we were trying to paint a picture of how ridiculous this probably is if you are to take some of the population combinations around the world and put all of them on level four, which is $32 and beyond. Let's say the capacity for level four is 1 billion people. And we were saying that the population of the United States is about 328 million people. The population of Canada is, um, let's start off with some, some of the, you know, kind of like the, the countries that have the highest population. Now the population of China is about, is, is about 1.4 billion people. So we were saying that if you put with a capacity of only 1 billion people, if you say China, okay, China fill up the whole quarter of 1 billion people, 400 million people in China will be on the outside looking in. And that would include the rest of us would technically be on the outside looking in. Now, if you took India, which has a population of 1.36 billion people, same, th same thing would happen. 
uh, you'll have about 366 million people in India left out. And you would have everybody else who's not in India left out. They will not be able to, you know, partake of that, you know, the highest level, which is level four. And then we say if we combine the population of US and Canada and all of Europe, you know, if you combine all of all of the United States, all of Canada and all of Europe, you know, it's a population of about one point one billion people. So we would still have about one hundred and twelve million people on the outside looking in. And that would mean, you know, that would technically mean everybody else that's not part of US, Canada, Europe will also be on the outside looking in. And then we're also saying that if if the highest income level bracket starts at thirty two dollars, I think that's pretty low. We can all agree that that's pretty low. You know, we're not talking about starting at $100. We're talking about starting at $32. And some of the other things that we're talking about in, in our last episode, we were talking about, you know, standard of living versus standard of earning. And, and, and I was making the argument that standard of living has increased and keeps increasing faster than the standard of earning. So there's a big problem there. And then, you know, we were talking about uh, standard of living versus minimum wage, and 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 I was I was I was I, I was suggesting that the term minimum wage should actually be phased out because it's deceiving. Minimum wage should be interpreted as minimum standard of living. That would mean that minimum wage should be based upon the agreed upon minimum standard of living (MSL). And that means that minimum standard of living um, becomes a new standard. So there's nothing like minimum wage. Minimum wage is useless. It doesn't benefit anyone. If you if you pay people minimum wage and they can't afford the minimum standard of living, it's useless. They're living in deficit. They're living in debt. So the minimum wage should be the minimum standard of living. That's it. That's That's the bottom line. That should be the foundation. And then once we've established that, then the minimum standard of living, I believe it should be determined at three levels. So we can start off by having a minimum standard of living at a city level. And then we can also have a minimum standard of living at a provincial, state, or regional level. And then we can have another minimum standard of living at a country level. Because different cities and different provinces and different countries are operating at different standards of living so we can start by saying okay if you live in this city we know this is the this is the rule if you are resident of this city the minimum standard of living that we've determined to live in this city is this that means minimum standard of earning is just going to be that and then you can also determine the minimum standard of living let's say statewide like you know per state you know per province per, per region let's say in places like you know like the UK, where they, they don't operate on provinces or states, it's regions, right? And then you can now take it a step further and say, okay, the minimum standard of living of a country is this. Now, the goal, because the goal would then be to raise and have economies operate, almost try to get up to match all of them have like similar standards of, you know, living. This is country per country. Because one of the problems that we're dealing with right now is uh, people from that are living in countries that have a deficient minimum, deficient standard of living are running away from those countries. 
And if we can get countries to say, okay, now this is an agreed upon standard of living. Now, all the, the you know, the economy has to be built up up to that level to meet that standard of living. Then we have some kind of like accountability radar that we've set and we've established that people can now start operating at, you know, every business decision, every economic decision is made to meet that. Because once you have a minimum standard of living, that means no one is going to be living in deficit. So we're kind of setting a new standard here. And then, you know, I made the point or I was making the argument that uh, we don't need jobs that, that aren't paying minimum standard of living. This is now becomes, okay, what's, what's, what's the plan once we've established these things? Now we get into a we get into a phase where it's like we have to phase out these jobs. They're useless. They are absolutely useless. We do not need any jobs that pay below minimum standard of living. They are absolutely useless, and it's the reason why we have a lot of people who who are dealing with all these kind of mental health issues, and there's so much pressure that's that's just building up in people's lives. People don't need to go and work at jobs that are not paying them minimum standard of living, which is the minimum standard of living of the city they're in or the province or the state or the region or the country. We're setting a new standard here. I also made the argument that it becomes a human rights violation if the minimum standard of living is unmet because we need to determine every country's uh, MSL an objective uh, minimum standard of living. You know, it's not just going to be a number that is determined every company decides. No, no, no. It's an objective minimum standard of living that, that we establish. And once once we have that, uh, we you know, we establish that per country, per state, per region, as the same per city. And then the next step was, okay, if a country has jobs that are still paying below minimum standard of living, uh, I was making the argument that a lot of people are talking about this, this concept of uh, universal basic income. I think this is the perfect gateway to roll out UBI. I, I think if any country is still paying below MSL, then that country should implement UBI, which is like universal basic income. And we'll, we'll kind of talk about it here. We're just kind of re recapping what were some of the concepts that I was laying out in, in, in the first episode. And we'll kind of get into how does UBI tie into minimum standard of living or minimum standard of earning. And one of the things that, that I was talking about is uh, why do we need to mandate uh, minimum standard of living Be globally? This is a global issue because lack of MSL trickles down and causes bigger problems in other areas. And it, it just causes them in all countries. It doesn't matter. You know, uh, it causes a lot of problems in healthcare. We're, we're seeing the healthcare right now. The healthcare system is, is, is you know, there's a, there's a lot of bottleneck there. It's crumbling. You know, the, 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 it cannot hold up the weight that is being put on it. Because if you have a lot of the population, majority of it, dealing with things like mental health and fatigue and stress and addiction and all of these things. Well, where do you think these things are coming from? The primary reason is because people are not able to afford the standards of living in the cities they're in. And you might say, well, why, why, why are these people in those cities? Well, we're going to break it down and, and you're really going to see that 
for the for 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 my uh, the biggest reason why this happens is actually not on the workforce. You know, we, we're going to look at who really has the power to influence the standard of living of a city, and then you'll get to see why these pressures are kind of building up, and you have this whole you know like the one percent versus the majority of the population. We'll kind of get get into that. Um, so yeah, so so I'm saying that out. If we don't mandate uh, minimum standard of living globally, then it just starts to trickle down into things like healthcare. It trickles down to things like immigration, you know, mental health, hate speech, racism, division. All of these things are because of one key issue here that we're not that we don't really want to deal with, you know. And and you can look at these. The pressures are either internal or external. You know, you might look at immigration as uh, an external issue, and you're saying, well. Yeah, if you don't mandate MSL globally, let's say in other countries and hold every country accountable, now you have people who feel that those countries where they're living are useless. But the truth is that um, if you look at every country, every country has been blessed with certain type of natural resources. We need every country to be we need every country to be productive. That that's the truth. We need every country to be productive. There's no way the economic engine of the world can be sustained by the United States alone. We already see what's happening in the United States. You know, it, it's more than G7. We need people in every country to be pulling the weight of this thing. Otherwise, the ship is going to sink. Like, like seriously, we need everyone in every country to be pulling the weight. Like we're in this together. But so we need to hold the, you know, the 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 governments or the people in leadership of all these countries accountable and say, hey. We in this country, let's say we in Canada, do not agree that the people of this country, let's say country, let's say Uganda, or let's say country, I don't know, uh, country, um, let's say country Nigeria, or let's say country Colombia. We, the you know, like if our minimum standard of living is this, we think that your minimum standard of living, we don't, we don't agree that your citizens the people of your country should be living below this. No, because we need your country to be productive. We need the, the, the economic engine of the world is not going to be driven by G7 or G20 or whatever you want to call it. It's impossible. It is not helping anyone. We need all countries to be pulling this weight together. So we start to hold all countries accountable for their minimum standard of living. Now, um, then you know i was talking about how lack of msl in as i said we're not calling them underdeveloped countries because as you can see you can look at them as that but the fact is that there is people there are people who live in quote-unquote you know fast world countries by definition but their lifestyle is a lifestyle of a quote-unquote underdeveloped country but let's just go with that term and i, I don't like to use it and, and i'm saying that lack of you know minimum standard of living in the quote unquote developing and under, uh, underdeveloped countries is holding the rest of the world hostage Be because we don't have any substantial GDP, you know, in those areas and we absolutely need it. And then uh, we, we kind of concluded, well, you know, this is where we ended. We're saying that uh, establishing minimum standard of living now sets the minimum standard of earning by default. You know, minimum wage becomes the minimum standard of earning that people get paid to live according to the determined ideal minimum standard of living. And by default, the minimum wage that any company can pay becomes minimum standard of earning, which is the minimum standard of living. 
Now, the the goal, the ultimate goal is for minimum wage, which is now minimum standard of earning, to be universal across the country. But as I say, we can start at the city level. So then, you know, I pose the question and say, okay, you know, if, if you listen to this and you're saying, yeah, okay, you present an interesting argument, but let's hypothetically say we've established MSL, per city, per state, province, or country, where do we go from here? And here's how, here's how we can start unrolling that. So now that we've kind of established to say, okay, this is the minimum standard of living. Then the next step, um, I believe, becomes, okay, let's do an inventory. Let's look at each company's financials and how they will be affected. You know, how many people are going to be affected if that company decides to downsize because based on their financials, they cannot afford to pay everybody, all their employees, minimum standard of living. Hmm. So now we do some kind of inventory and we say, okay, we're going to look at your books. This is now a law and everyone has to be paid this. Well, a company says, well, we can't afford to pay people that. So then the inventory, you know, it shows us how many jobs. The other thing that, that an inventory like this does, it really shows us that how many, what percentage of the jobs that are, that are in the economy what percentage of them do not meet the minimum standard of living or minimum standard of earning? Because one of the things that I, I don't really like is uh, many a times you have, um, you, you do have like uh, all of these job reports, you know, and, and, and then these numbers come out, oh, the, the economy has produced like 600,000 new jobs and, and all of that, but they never tell you what kind of jobs are they? You know, like I, they might tell you that they're in this sector, but you never really get to know. Okay, you've created these jobs, but if you're paying people seven fifty an hour or ten dollars, and they need twenty dollars per hour to be able to meet the living standard of the city that they're working in, that job is useless. Like we don't need that. So we have to go away from like the vain metrics of. of that you see on the news or the job update, the, you know, the job updates that, that, that you read on like whatever, whatever economic report, you know, you, you get your news from. The real question has to be, okay, the economy has generated 600,000 jobs, but what percentage of those jobs are actually paying minimum standard of living? That's, that's gotta be it. So that really starts to show us kind of like how deep, how flawed the economy is like, you know, how weak or how strong the economy is now. How do we deal with companies that can't pay the minimum standard of earning? Now, if we have established that by law, you just can't pay people below minimum standard of earning anymore or minimum standard of living. Now, I think this is a perfect segue for governments, uh, for this concept that a lot of people are talking about, which is universal basic income. So I believe this is where the government you know, can come in and say, okay, for a government can say, we're gonna have a transition period Every company that is not able to pay your employees minimum standard of earning, we're having a transition period. You know, I think we've we've seen it happen, you know, with like COVID and, and, and the pandemic where the government had to pay people a certain amount of money. But I think what the government now can say, we have a transition period and this is how it's going to work. There's stage one of universal basic income. Now, most people, they're looking at universal basic income. And I think the reason they're, these people, you know, both sides of the aisle and a lot of people, 
they kind of they think it's a good thing, but they think that oh, you're just giving away free money to people. So they're like, you know, and 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 they're kind of still struggling with it. Well, I think this is one of the best ways that you can kind of introduce it. You know, you're not just saying what you're saying is that you're introducing it as a wage subsidy. You know, like you're saying stage one of universal basic income is actually a wage subsidy. So you're saying it's a wage subsidy to companies that can't pay minimum standard of earning. Now, you meet with the companies and you tell them, hey, we aren't going to allow anyone to live below the ideal or minimum standard of, of living of this country, of this city, of this state, of this region, of this province. Now, we are going to subsidize X percent you know, of your company's wages to make sure that every employee is paid according to the ideal standard of living. Now, by doing this, I think it gives us a gradual evolution towards, you know, complete universal basic income. Now, if we, I actually believe that if the economy is actually operating anywhere close to 80% efficiency, like majority, majority of the population would never need universal basic income. If we had the economic engine like operating at, at least 80% of economic efficiency, that would mean that you probably have only 20% of the people, you know, who are using UBI or, you know, like universal basic income, you know, like the government is only uh, subsidizing 20% of the workforce because of a good economic engine. But right now we have so many things out of alignment, you know, people are not working where they're supposed to work. Uh, there's just a lot of internal pressures, external pressures. So I think the perfect segue or the perfect introduction for this concept that a lot of people are talking about of universal basic income is as a wage subsidy for companies that cannot pay this. Now, so once so once we, we've kind of set the table and said, okay, we know we've done inventory, we, ha we have our minimum standard of living, we've done inventory, we know what percentage of companies, what percentage of the workforce is gonna need, um, what percent of, you know, what percentage of the jobs in the economy cannot pay MSL. We know we've met with the companies, we've looked at their financials, we're saying how, you know, how long are you going to need, you know, to crank up your efficiency to be able to pay all your employees and, and, and you know, set a period and say for X number of months, you know, we're going to help you. We're going to subsidize X percent of your of your wages. And and now the next step becomes, OK, we have a new slate. You know, we kind of have a stronger foundation to build off of, you know, because now we don't have anyone who's going to work. They're working 40 hours a week and they can barely afford the apartment that they live in. You know what I mean? I, I think then at that point, there's so much pressure that you're taking off, off of the healthcare system. There's just so much pressure. It's almost like the whole pressure that is, you can feel just built, that has just built up over the, you know, the last two years, you're just popping it with just one move, with just one economic move like this. You're just like, you pop, the, you pop that balloon, all this pressure just kind of goes out and then people can cool down and say, okay, now guys, it's time to just kind of like, let's innovate and let's rebuild the economy. Now, the goal of any country, uh, you know, as I'm saying, becomes to lower the number of people on UBI, you know, and, and, you know, we're doing that by creating better businesses. It's almost like better everything. Now, how do we do that? You know, uh, 
you know, you look at the stats of how many businesses stay in operation after they open, you know, in the first year, you know, you know, all the way from like restaurants and to so many industries, it's almost like the percentages are always like, you know, three out of 10, you know, wow, <laughs> one out of five, you know, three out of 10, you know, two out of 10, you know, most businesses will close, you know, like you, you hear you hear stats like this, that they'll close, you know, in the first two years of, you know, operating, you know, or they don't make a profit or they don't do this or they don't do that. Um, but I think one of the, one of the things that we're struggling with right now is we haven't fully tapped into our creative resources because a lot of people, it's very easy to think that, well, I can just start this business and employ five people. You know, the first business that comes to mind, you know, of course you, you want people to open up businesses that they're passionate about. That's, that's how an economy is, is primarily built up, you know, like, People have to be passionate about the businesses they're opening up. But if you've already set a standard and let's say someone wants to open up a business. Now, most people, when they open up a business, you know, it's, 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 they don't, they don't do some kind of research to find out, okay, what are my financials going to look like? You know, like, um, what are my revenues going to be? Like, am I able to pay my workforce and things like that? Now that almost becomes like, a, it's almost like a requirement. A prerequisite it's almost like okay hey you want to open up a business now it's not like we don't want to give you a loan like a, you know like a business loan or some kind of a financing but we're saying hey if you want to become an entrepreneur and you want us to invest money into your business we want to invest in a business that is going to help us rebuild the economy so let's look at some projections about the impact that your business is going to have so we start to look at how many let's say households how many people is your, you know, how many people are going to be employed by your business and how much are you going to pay them? So you kind of know all these things beforehand, because if that person is opening up a, a business in, in a city, you, we already know this is the minimum standard of living. And then we're saying, Hey, we're ready to finance this business, but we need to make sure that somehow you, the entrepreneur, you go back, find out how you can be more innovative, how you're going to be able to scale up this business? We and and you're not sending them to just go find out this information on their own, you know on their own. You know this is where all of these utilities come in that that are, that are available, but they're kind of hard to kind of come by. You know, like most people that are you know the lending institutions, they for the most part you know I've been through this, and for the most part most of these lending institutions they. They they want to look at your numbers and say, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, when will you break even? You know, what's the profitability of the business and things like that. But they only look at that. They they never really sit down with you and say, hey, let's help you get to this and, and say, this is this is what we will finance. And your numbers are not quite there. Maybe your projections are not quite there, but let us sit with you because we want to help your business because we're all in this together. We want to help your business grow. We want you to start up. Uh, we think this business has a very uh, big upside. And so all of these resources almost became like everyone at these financial lending institutions, they they almost became like when you go to them, the first thing they say, if you if your numbers don't meet kind of like the, 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 you know, like the, the bottom line of what they normally finance, they sit down with you. You know, we start to sit down with entrepreneurs and say, Okay, you want to set up a business. What is it about? You know, maybe it's, you know, 
it's an e-commerce kind of business. And say, if you're trying to be a, a sole entrepreneur, fair enough. You, you know, you can, you, you, you know, like, but if you want to empower the economy and, you know, employ people, you know, create jobs and things like that, you need to think about this avenue of revenue generation. You know, so we're now thinking at a different level because I think right now what's happening, you have a lot of people doing, uh, there's nothing wrong with mom and pops, mom and pop shops, but you have a lot of these businesses that just start, you know, and, and then they shut down. And, uh, you know, one, after one year, after two years, and it's not the people were not good enough, but maybe because we gave up too early on them, you know, and because right now, as I said, you have these financial institutions and, and they just want you, want you to come in with the numbers that they expect you to have. And if you don't have those numbers, they're not willing to finance your business. But that shouldn't stop there. It should be a conversation of, okay, here's how we can help you to finance your business. But let's work with you to maybe get your projections up. Let's think about some other business, uh, some other revenue sources for your business. So we're now doing things in a different way. And we're increasing the success rate of uh, all these new businesses. I don't think it's a, it's, I think a lot of people, when they throw out numbers, like, oh, a lot of, you know, people say, let's say, if you talk about startup companies, people say, you know, nine out of 10 startups fail. And, you know, when they say that, it's almost like they say it with pride. That is something wrong. If we have nine entrepreneurs failing out of every 10, there's something wrong. And, and if you go back and start reading, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, and you read things like uh, uh, how the history of the internet, and, and it's a very good book that really shows you kind of like the genesis of a lot of the 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 the, the companies that I'm not talking about, like in the startup world, you know, all the way from like Google's, the Facebooks, and all of this. It's almost like every company, for them to get to where they are today, it's, it's very interesting that. At their inception, they never had the best financial numbers. In fact, a lot of them had nothing, zero revenue projections. But it's almost like it took faith of just one person saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to bet. So, yeah, it, it took faith or, you know, someone saying that I'm going to bet on this company and I'm going to work with the entrepreneurs and we're going to figure out where the revenue is going to come in from. And with... With, with private sector investors, you know, like venture cap, you know, VCs and, and angel investors, they, they have a risk mentality, you know, because a lot of them have, have been through it. So it's easy for them to do that. Now, the problem we have in a lot of other countries where there's not a lot of venture capital money is the money is in the bank is in the hands of financial institutions. You know, the money is in, in banks, the money is in uh, th this kind of institutions. Uh, I was reading somewhere. I don't know, probably it was, it was LinkedIn or something like that. And someone was talking about how it's almost impossible for a new entrepreneur or startup company to get any kind of financing from a Canadian bank. It's ridiculous. And so these are some of these are some of the things that just really make you wonder. If you if you if you run a bank and you're not even willing to bet on on the entrepreneurs in that economy, how do you think the economy is going to grow? If if you if you're not going to give money, if you're just going to keep obstacles in front of the entrepreneurs, you know, 
if you don't believe in the ideas, then maybe you should do all the innovating. You know, maybe you should be in the banking industry as well as innovate for engineering, innovate for medicine, innovate for all other fields. But now you have countries like, you know, the U.S. has been lucky in, in a sense that with startups and, and new entrepreneurs, most of the money comes from venture capitalists and, and, and angel investors. You know, they don't have to go to the bank. But in other countries, this is a very big problem because the banks are not willing to, to give money away. So it's like, well, no wonder we're importing everything from China. No wonder everything has to be manufactured outside Canada or outside this country and this country because the people who have the money are just sitting on it. People don't realize that any in the economy, like money has to go around for it to have any use. Money doesn't, doesn't benefit anyone if it's just sitting in a bank somewhere. The money has to be put to use. So people, it was a long thread on LinkedIn and people were just complaining, all entrepreneurs just saying, it's, it's damn near impossible to get a dollar from these Canadian banks. It's ridiculous. How, how do you expect the economy to grow? You see, people, people are not really thinking ahead. You know, we're just putting obstacles in front of everyone. You know, politics is about putting obstacles in front of citizens. That's what it's become. At every level, it's just people just putting obstacles in front of everyone. And now you're starting to see that we now have countries where everyone now thinks that the government is the solution to every problem. No, we're the citizens. We're the solutions. We have the answers. We just need some people to be more cooperative and understand that, hey, every business, even your bank at one time was a risk. Every business has a risk factor to it, but in order for us to build the economy, we have to take some risk. We have to stop you know, printing numbers that one out of every 10 startups fail as some kind of like big headline. No, it, it should not be in big print. It should be in small print because it means that the business leaders, that the mentors are doing a very bad job. Because trust me, if you read the history of Google or Facebook, of, uh, of all of these big companies, you know, that were falling on the web and even, even Apple, you know, at a certain point, someone had to say, you know what, I'm going to bet on this business. You know, the story about Apple is very interesting where it's like Steve and uh, he, he, uh, Steve Jobs, he, he just went into, I think it was a parts, uh, so someone who was uh, manufacturing parts for them and said, hey, we, we, you know, we're going to produce, I don't know, something like uh, 40,000, some computers or something like that. And we just need you to give us the parts and trust that once we assemble these parts, you know, they're going to sell. And the guy believed in them. But that's the thing is that most of these companies, you, you, you see, it's almost like it took someone with like, uh, with a kind of mindset to set them on a path of success. But if we have nine out of 10 entrepreneurs failing, that's not something to print in, in big, like in bold. No, we should be ashamed. These are the things I want us to talk about. Like we should be ashamed that people are failing. How can we help people succeed? Because innovation is not gonna come through one person. We're gonna talk about how that is affecting the world right now. It's even affecting the US. You cannot have innovation coming from only one channel. We need creativity, we need diversity. That means more people need to have access to resources. We, we can't put obstacles and that's why the economy is just, the people who don't have access to the economy, I mean, to, the, to these resources, they end up becoming um, 
almost like leeches on the economy. Well, because they didn't get a chance. You know, we have to give, we have to train people when they come to the bank and say, hey, your numbers don't look good. We don't think that this is this is gonna be a profitable business, but here's how we believe we can make it more profitable. But you don't just let people come in through the door and then you just send them out. Where where are they gonna get resources? Because right now the economy, the whole world economy needs everyone to chip in. We need every country to be chipping in. That's it. And there's, there's so much to talk about here. I'm getting so fired up, but uh, I could keep talking for another one hour because there's so much you're going to be talking about. But uh, I think we'll call it a wrap for today. And uh, yeah, in, in our next episode, I'll be talking about how we can you know, help people and how we can start rebuilding good economies after we've eliminated all the jobs that are useless, that are not paying people minimum standard of living. Uh, thank you for tuning in and I'll see you on the next episode. In the next episode, we'll continue talking about the induction of UBI, Universal Basic Income. We'll take a deeper dive into how we can remote our private sector job creation engine, how we can fully harness the creative juices of entrepreneurs in different countries around the world, and the type of support systems that they need from financing institutions, especially in parts of the world where venture capital is limited. We'll also talk about why it's time to do away with the wild, wild west and survival for the fittest mindsets, mentalities that put us in this chaotic position. They have been tried and they have run their course. So we'll talk about how the core principles of the Jesus and Everything Foundation, what we call our nine JCPs, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How these principles are a perfect problem-solving lens for the economic issues we're dealing with today. This was part two of the WWE series, The Wild Wild Everywhere. And your host for today was Calvin Kabanda. Thanks for listening. Screaming and crying, I felt myself dying. Just hit and rewind, then you gave me a sign.